0: Last week, and we are continuing today. So, if anybody needs a set of the eleven pages, everybody have. Very good. Let me remind you of some things that are coming up tonight at six. Is the Ascend off dessert fellowship for Pastor Rich and Tracy. So you're all invited to that. And if you think about and thinking about it ahead of time, makes it good for everybody. Uh, Trying to ad lib, you don't realize how long you're talking when you try to ad lib. So uh, try to think about some thoughts if you're going to uh, give a word of thanks and gratitude and encouragement to to them, and we would encourage you to do that. So that's tonight at uh, 6 o'clock. And then a week from Wednesday, one week from this Wednesday, the 24th, is Jonathan Lehman is going to be here with us, and he's going to be talking about maintaining Christian witness In a polarized political age that'll be at six o'clock during that six o'clock time we will have ministries outside of this room for junior high and below senior high and above will all be in here to hear from to hear from jonathan and uh, he is going to be interviewed on wmuz bob duco's program and on that during that interview Uh, Duco is going to mention that he's going to be here that that night. He's also going to be the next day, the 25th, at Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, so Duco will mention that also. But you can get a flavor for who Jonathan is and what he's going to be, the kind of thing he'll be talking about in that interview. Uh, That was originally scheduled for this Monday uh, afternoon, and I had told you that, but I got word that it's been moved to next Wednesday, next Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, Uh, Wednesday, the 17th, and it's at three o'clock in the afternoon. This Wednesday, three o'clock, WMUZ, uh, Bob Duco show, Wednesday at three o'clock. He got moved because Bob Duco had a medical thing going on with his wife that he has to attend to. She's okay, they they told us, so that's good, but he he needed to move it for that reason. So that will be on the 24th. The following week, the 31st, January 31st, we resume all of our midweek programs. So our children's program, Pioneer Club, Teen programs, but also the three adult classes that we'll be having. We'll be continuing Master Plan for Life from last semester. Pastor Larry will be teaching a class on parenting, and a new phase of the parenting class, parenting with purpose. So, if you didn't attend the first last semester, you can jump in. You can jump in here because this is a new section. And then we'll have a third class for any who don't fit into those between the Testaments. Dr. Combs who's relocated to Virginia, as you know, but we're still going to try to get work out of him. And he's gonna be on the TV screen live, and you'll be able to interact with him. So if you're in that class, it's not just a recording that you're listening to, it's him live, and you'll be able to ask questions and interact with him. It's a fascinating class about how, uh, between the end of the Old Testament and beginning of the New Testament, that 400 years in between, how God set the stage, set everything up culturally, religiously, uh, politically for the coming of the Messiah. So you'll, you'll love that class if you're able to take it. Our next newcomers orientation is for four Sundays in a row. It is March the third, and then the next three Sundays after that through the 24th. So if you've never taken our newcomers orientation, then that's a prerequisite to becoming a member of our church. So we encourage you to, uh, Mark that on your calendar. It's during this hour, starting the first week of March. And then the last week of March, the last Sunday in March is the 31st. That is Easter uh, this year. We'll just have one service at 1030 on that day. All right, page one of the notes that we, we got to page three last week. So I'm just going to quickly remind you as to what we discussed in pages uh, one, uh, one through two. But down at the bottom of page one, In that last paragraph i say failure to identify what elements and therefore ministries are common to all disciples results in a smorgasbord of offerings that are deemed of equal importance where one just chooses those they like and or can can engage so here's what i said last week about that well what that means is that it's important for a church To have ministries that are clearly identified as for everyone that if you're going to be a maturing disciple of christ then we're offering you ministries in order to help you in the areas of discipleship that every follower of christ needs to be engaged in doesn't matter if you're male or female doesn't matter if you're married or not doesn't matter if you are married but don't have children or don't have children these are for every disciple And that's represented in the chart just above the paragraph there. That's why our spiritual growth process, this chart that you've seen a lot, I show it in the notebook in our newcomer's orientation. I put it on the screen uh, as part of the state of the church address uh, here in the last couple of weeks during the first hour messages. You see this a lot. And that chart embodies the three objectives that we believe God has given to his church. We call them learn, love, and live. And we offer ministries under each of those three, learn, love, and live, that are for everybody. So it doesn't matter your demographic. It means I encourage you strongly to be involved in all of these, because they are all for all followers of Christ, uh, all disciples. However, there are other kinds of ministries that a church can and should have if, it, if it's able that do deal with people that are in certain demographics. So I mentioned on our midweek program that's starting up a week from Wednesday, that Pastor Larry is doing a class on parenting. Not everybody is, is a parent. But for those that are, the Bible has some instruction about that, that we want to give to our people in a very practical and, and helpful way. So look at the top of page two, if you would. I say such ministries like men's ministry, women's ministry, parenting ministry, marriage ministry, as important and beneficial as they are, are by their nature targeted to subgroups within the body and are offered and used to the extent that they are, are healthy. So when you hear us announce heart-to-heart women's meetings, when you hear us announce entrusted for uh, mothers of young, of young children, when you hear us announce the men's, men's ministry offering. You should not equate those with the ministries that are on the chart on page one. Those are things that are offered to you if you fit into those categories and you find them helpful. And you're never going to find us putting a bunch of pressure on you to take uh, things that are ancillary, supplemental. They're designed to help you. If you don't don't need help with parenting, then volunteer to teach the parenting class (laughs) for us. If you if you don't need help with your marriage, well then you don't have to you know you don't have to do any of those, and we're not going to pressure you to do them. But we do know that those are all areas where there is in any relationship uh, sets of relationship struggles, and we want to offer help for those, and so we do. So we want to differentiate between those. So the last line in that top paragraph, the church's ministry must distinguish between common roles for all disciples. And individual vocations for some and I mentioned last week I'm using that word vocations it's from the Latin word vox which means voice or calling and if you then are married you're called to be a husband or or wife if you have children then you you're called to be a, a parent so those are individual callings that not all of us have but all of us as disciples of Christ have common roles that we are to play. And that's why we offer those common ministries that are depicted on page one. Roles, vocations, and phases. This flows out of our church's theme verse, which is Colossians 128. We have it for you at the top of page two. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. That fully mature piece. If that's our objective, then we want to offer, as a full-service church, ministries that help everybody get there. Get there in their common calling, but then in their individual callings. If they're parents, if, they're, if they are uh, married, if, uh, if you're a man or if you're a woman. In all of those, there are particular struggles that we can and do have that we want to help you with and that's why we call this then full service church we want to offer ministry to everybody no matter where they are the common roles i say under that verse and individual vocations for each disciple are carried out over time progressively and often predictably We each go through phases of life during which our advance in godliness is to be enhanced, but which, if not negotiated well, can retard our growth. It's a mouthful, but what we're saying is this. That as you grow in the Lord, you do that over time. And over time, in in the normal course of life, all of us go through particular phases, transitions, that if we don't make those transitions well, they can... They can result in a couple of steps back in our progress rather than us moving forward. And so we recognize that. And because we recognize that, last sentence in that paragraph to present one fully mature, you see that, means the church will seek to help with those transitions before they occur. As she, the church, shares her collective wisdom for the spiritual benefit of those entering a new stage. We call that middle of page two proactive discipleship. You're discipling someone in how to handle the next phase of life before they get to it. And I said last week in most of our churches the only area for which we normally do that in our churches is marriage. We have many churches have premarital counseling and that's a very good thing. But it's the only thing that most of us have a pre-proactive set of counseling instruction and resources and support from other people that have been through it, marriage is generally the only one we have for that. What we're trying to do with our proactive, full-service church discipleship is to have that at every, at every stage. So that's what we mean by proactive, and over these next few weeks, I want to roll that, roll that out. But then there is, along the way, not just the natural phases and stages that we all encounter... Young adult, just young adulthood, (laughs) going into junior high, having a junior (laughs) higher, right? Uh, Having your first child. Uh, Some people, you know, have their first child and they don't have a support network because they may not live near uh, their their parents. And so the church becomes their their family of sorts. And we have lots of experience to to help with that. Um, Midlife. Sometimes midlife crisis we hear about, right? Uh, Retirement and how to handle retirement. Empty nest. There's lots of these common phases that people people go through that we can proactively prepare them for. But then as you do that, there's not only that, but there are the curveballs that you're thrown in life. Curveballs from just being in a fallen world. Sometimes these curveballs are a result of what you or I did in our own sin. We did things that have made life more difficult for us because of the choices that we've made. Or it may be what someone else did that has adversely impacted us. Or it may be that we got a a diagnosis with a, a, a cancer or something like that. And so that second to the last paragraph, the bottom of page two, I talk about that and I say... Four lines up, any of these can slow or stop our progress, resulting in the need for reactive discipleship, also known as personal counsel. It may be provided informally from one brother or sister to another, since any mature Christian is capable of sharing and applying God's truth to the issues of hand at hand, according to Romans 15:14. But at times we face issues, bottom of page two, that can benefit from more formal training from a biblical counselor counselor in the church's counseling ministry. In either case, one might need to pull over on the road to maturity as you're advancing and now you get this obstacle that has come up, you may need to take an exit ramp and pull off to what we call a restoration area. And you see that at the top of page three. So you're going along the road, and you're going through the college and career phase, and you're going through the marriagehood and parenting phase, three quarters of a mile up. But then you hit a crisis; you might need to pull off to the restoration area. So it's our church's vision then to have counseling of the informal and formal varieties that can help people in in reactive uh, discipleship, and. I mentioned last week, if we only do the formal variety, then what will happen is that the, the ministry of brother to brother, sister to sister will slow and, and perhaps cease because we think we've got a professional group of people who do that. And we don't want that to happen. We want the trained group of people. But we don't want that to be the only reactive counseling that goes on. We want that informal variety to be going on a lot, involving a lot of people. So even if you are not part of the future counseling ministry, uh, we definitely want you to be part of the informal counseling ministry, and we'll tell you about ways that you you can do that. All right, so that is the vision. That's what we're trying to do. Now, middle of page three, we left off with learning, loving, and living in the first century. So what I want to do here, and over the remaining pages, there are, you have 11 pages, and, and what these pages document is, I didn't make, I didn't make this up. That's really, you could, you could call this lesson, Ken didn't make this up, okay? I want, you to, I want you to see that there's first and foremost biblical precedent for what we're trying to do. And then I want you to see that in the history of the church, the church has sought ways to try to disciple people and advance them. And what we're trying to do is kind of an updated version of that for our context, for our time and and setting. So middle of page three, learning, loving, and living in the first century. Remember, those are our three objectives for our church's mission statement. CBC exists to help people learn about God, love him and others, live for his purpose, first century. The Bible describes the first church in Jerusalem in terms clearly designed as commendation and therefore worthy of imitation. This is Acts 2. This is the chapter, Acts chapter 2, where the very first church in the universe was started in that chapter. And it's the only one that exists. And when Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, gets toward the end of Acts chapter 2, he makes some summary comments about this first church in its early days. And these are, these are comments of commendation. These are the good things about this church. And because they are that, they are worthy then of imitation by churches like ours. That's what I'm saying. And here's what Luke said. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You guys see learn there? So I have in brackets there. And they devoted themselves to fellowship. That's the love others piece. Learn, love, love him and others. To the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed. Notice these next three words. By the apostles. In scripture, you most often find the apostles are the ones who are at the center of the miraculous signs and wonders that go on because the apostles had special gifting. That's why they're in a separate category called apostles. But all the believers, that third line, were together and they had everything in common. Again, they're demonstrating their love for one another. They, they even sold property, property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. So that's showing love. It's also living for God's purpose because it is is bearing witness of the love that Christians have for one another to an onlooking world. And remember in John 13, 35, Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my followers if you love one another. And then it says every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts, love him, worship, They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. So there's an evangelistic effect here, living for his purpose. And the Lord added to their number daily, those who are being saved. So we culled this idea, came up with our own words and, you know, started them all with an L. So they're easy to remember, learn, love and live. But we didn't make it up. This is what you see the early church being commended for doing. And this passage, that bottom paragraph, provides in concise fashion the functions of learn, love, and live that the church is to perform. But as you've heard me say in the past, the book of Acts makes clear that the forms by which these are carried out varied. And those can and must vary for us in our culture too. So why didn't God, in addition to telling you what to do, tell us in scripture precisely how to do it. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us that either. So the Bible doesn't tell us how to do it and it doesn't tell us why it doesn't tell us how to do it. Here's my theory on why the Bible doesn't say, here's how you need to implement, learn, love, and live across the board for all ages, no matter where you are. And that's because how that looks is different depending on the culture you're in. How loving other people looks is different depending on the culture you're in. When we send missionaries out to other cultures, one of the things they have to do is learn the place they're going to so that they're still gonna do all three of these, learn, love, and live. They just have to figure out how in that culture that needs to look. And so over 2000 years, those same things have been done but they've been done in different ways because they were at different times and at different places. And so my theory is the reason God didn't say you have to do it this way is because a particular way isn't going to fly in every place and at every time in the world that God is using us to reach through the great commission. So this passage gives us the functions, what we're to do, but not the forms. As one surveys, third line down, the New Testament, he finds that it's filled with directives regarding the functions, but it's short on the specifics, the forms that are necessary. So for instance, the Bible tells us famously in Hebrews 10.25, do not give up meeting together, but let us encourage one another. And so it tells us what we're to do, meet regularly and encourage. But it doesn't tell us how we're supposed to to go about that. So top of page four, we're going to see some other examples of that. So since the Bible is, as we'll prove at the top of page four, since the Bible is short on how you do it, it's short on the forms, then what church leadership, what churches need to do, is understand the what we're supposed to do, the functions, learn, love, and live, and then carefully structure the ministry in a way that provides, this is one of my favorite words when thinking about this, it provides environments for these things to flourish. Environments where learning, loving, and living can flourish. You structure the ministry so that you have times and places environments where those things can happen and you intentionally do that so the loving others you need times where people are in each other's grills kim's sister is from chicago we love it when she visits because she's funny she entertains us jane watches sometimes hey jane and uh and and jane uses getting in your grill a lot i think that's funny but it means being in somebody's space. And we need to, if we're gonna do the love others piece, we need to intentionally create environments where people are in each other's space. That's why we have home groups. To put you in space with people in ways that you're not in space with people this morning. You are in a more intimate setting. You're getting to know them in a deeper way. You're praying for them. So, the, so the, the community groups are not just something we do because other churches do it, or it sounded like a good idea. The truth of the matter is, I don't think we do anything here just because it sounded like a good idea. We do it because it intentionally creates environments to allow the objectives of learning, loving, and living to flourish. But how you do those, you have to make wise decisions about as best you can before the Lord, top of page four. So we're not told, Hebrews 10.25, when to meet or how often or where or what the order of service should be and so on. We're given illustrations of these in the New Testament, but it's impossible to derive universal ways to carry out these functions, forms to carry out these functions. In fact, with regard to those ways, those forms... Here's what you find in the New Testament. The functions are most often given without any direction on how to do it. The ones that are given on how to do it are often partial and incomplete. So you've got Acts 5.42. We're told that the apostles taught. So the learning function is happening because they're teaching. That's the the function. And they did it, we're told, from house to house. That's the way they did it. That's the form but we're not told whether they taught in every house or just some, whether they taught believers and unbelievers, whether they were inside or outside the house, whether the neighbors were invited, a whole host of things we're not told about that. So it's partial and incomplete. And then thirdly, that third bullet, sometimes the forms, that is the way you go about it, carrying out the same function vary from one context to another. So again, that same verse, Acts 5.42, says the apostles, in addition to teaching from house to house, they also taught in the temple courts. So they had a bunch of ways that they did this. So here's what you can summarize. You can't absolutize forms, the way you do it. The way you do it changes from culture to culture and over time. The way you do it can change and probably should over time within a ministry because culture changes from one generation to to the next. And so there may be more effective ways to do this. So you cannot absolutize the way you do it. And if you absolutize the way you do it, then you will just go through the motions. And that's what so many of us do in our churches. We just do it because we always did it. And we're going through the motions. So you can't absolutize them because they're often not described, often incomplete, and they're always changing. So that is learning, loving, and living. And that's in the first century church as described in the opening chapters of the the book of Acts. But then there is moving forward in church history. Now for the next several pages, I've got a bunch of stuff in here about how important... Uh, Christians and Christian leaders went about this task of trying to organize for discipleship purposes. If you're not into history, these next 19 minutes could be a little tough, rough on you. Okay, so I'm just giving you fair warning. If you nod off, I probably will not call you out, but I but I can't guarantee it. Okay, middle of page four. Anti anti Nicene. Anti meaning before. Um, And Nicene, referring to the year 325 AD and a famous council of Christian leaders called the Council of Nicaea. So anti-Nicene, not anti, A-N-T-I, not against, but anti-Nicene. So that's before Nicaea. And I call it that here because you read that phrase a lot in Christian literature. Uh, That refers to the time period before 325 AD, and they refer to it as anti-Nicene. The second century leadership of Christ's church consisted of a privileged group who were near in time to the apostles' teaching and practices, and some were their direct co-workers. So, have you ever thought much about that when i've taught church history here i make a big deal about the transition from the death of the apostles to the people to whom the apostles passed on the baton being those guys was a heady responsibility because the apostles were the leadership of the early church and they were the ones to whom the first century church looked for direction as the New Testament was being completed, as the church was being established, as they are carrying out these signs and wonders and all of that, the apostles, but the apostles die. And then what happens after they die? How does it carry on? How is that transition made? Roman Catholicism says that they continue to have apostolic authority. They pass the baton to people who had apostolic authority just like the apostles did. So the apostle Peter was the first pope, says Roman Catholicism. It's not true, but that's what they say. And then Peter, as the first pope, passes on apostolic authority to someone named Linus. And so Roman Catholicism says there's a second pope, and his name was Linus, L-I-N-U-S. Now, you can search church history to try to prove that there was ever any transition from Peter to a guy named Linus, and you will search in vain. But they, they claim to have a list, as a matter of fact, of popes. That from Peter to Linus, and then on it goes, up to our day. And that's why very often the popes today will adopt, you know, when they become pope, they adopt a new name, and often they will adopt an apostolic name, John Paul. To just emphasize that I am a successor to the apostles. So that's one way to do the transition. It's a wrong way to do the transition. But the truth of the matter is the apostles were of extraordinary influence in the first century. And when they died, now leaders that they had trained needed to now pick up the baton, as it were. And these guys are called in church history, church fathers. And sometimes called the anti Nicene fathers. So these are church leaders then who lived before 325 A.D. And the second century leadership of Christ Church consisted of this privileged group who were near in time to the apostles' teaching and practice. Some were their direct co workers. For instance, Clement was a protege of the Apostles Peter and Paul. Polycarp was an associate of the Apostle John god used these men and other church fathers to stabilize the church doctrinally here's an example of that the false teaching of arius that christ was a created being was refuted by another church father athanasius and others and it was declared heretical arius teaching was declared heretical at the council of nicaea the one i mentioned in 325 that was the reason they got together that was the main reason is because we had this false teaching going around in the church, led by a guy named Arius, and Arianism, then, is the teaching that Christ is not eternally God, but that at a point in in the past, he was created. He came to be. And so Arius was infamous for saying, quote, "There there, there was a time when he was not. Referring to Christ. There was a time when he didn't exist. He was created. Caesarius. Athanasius said the Bible teaches otherwise. Council. The council council affirmed what the, the Bible teaches. Just a quick comment about that. The council didn't create that truth. It simply affirmed the truth that the Bible already taught. So sometimes people think that these councils hand down these edicts, and therefore that's what the truth is. No, it's them simply grappling with what the Bible says and then making a statement, and in this case, an orthodox statement. So church leaders from prior to that time, prior to 325, as I've said, are often referred to as the anti-Nicene fathers, those shortly after the post-Nicene fathers. And they cared, bottom of page four, not only for the flock's doctrinal well-being, but for the sheep's individual spiritual growth as well. Clement, Polycarp, and the unknown author of the epistle to Diognetus are representative of that. Clement wrote a letter to the church at Corinth in which he admonished them to a dedicated life in keeping with their calling, and he used discipleship terminology, following the way of truth, top of page five. So here's Clement writing his letter to Corinth. Let us therefore earnestly strive to be found in the number of those that wait for him, in order that we may share in his promised gifts. But how, beloved, shall this be done? In our understanding, if our understanding be fixed by faith towards God, if we earnestly seek the things that are pleasing and acceptable to him, if we do the things which are in harmony with his blameless will, and if we follow the way of truth, casting away from us all unrighteousness and iniquity, along with all covetousness, strife, evil practices, deceit, whispering and evil speaking, all hatred of God, pride and haughtiness, vainglory and ambition. That's Clement urging the Christians at Corinth in the second century, To continue on in the way of truth. Polycarp, likewise, wrote a letter to the Philippians. And he uses discipleship language. And he calls on believers to, quote, arm ourselves with the armor of righteousness. And let us teach, first of all, ourselves to walk in the commandments of the Lord. And then that aforementioned author of the second century epistle to Diognetus said, when you have read and carefully listened to these things, you shall know what God bestows on such as rightly love him, presenting in yourselves a tree bearing all kinds of produce and flourishing well, being adorned with various fruits. That Diognetus letter contains some important foundational truths about first century discipleship that indicate consistency with what we have seen in the new Testament. He says, I do not speak of things strange to me, strange to me, nor do I aim at anything inconsistent with right reason. But having been a disciple of the apostles, I am become a teacher of the Gentiles. I minister the things delivered to me, to me, to those who are disciples worthy of the truth. For who that is rightly taught and begotten by the loving word would not seek to learn accurately the things which have been clearly shown by the word to his disciples, to whom the word being manifested has revealed them, speaking plainly to them, not understood indeed by the unbelieving, but conversing with the disciples who, being esteemed faithful by him, acquired a knowledge of the mysteries of the Father. That passage provides some insights. Insights. About disciples and discipleship. First, since disciples are used opposite there, the unbelieving, then believers are considered to be disciples, and only believers are disciples. Now let me just stop there. The Bible teaches that. And now you have someone in the second century following on what the Bible taught that every believer is a disciple, every believer is a follower of Christ. In the book of Acts, The words believer and disciple are synonyms. So contrary to what some have done in the church, including in my my lifetime, teachers out there today, who make a distinction between being a believer and being a disciple. In fact, when we get to page 11, I'll show you how that developed. That That there's this disjunction that developed in the minds of some people between those who have come to Christ and therefore have salvation, but then they're not necessarily disciples, followers of Christ. And the Bible teaches that if you profess Christ, you're a follower of Christ. You are a disciple. If you're a believer, you are a disciple. And there is no gap between them. And this makes makes that clear. Thus, middle of that paragraph, clearly conversion is prerequisite to discipleship. And He calls himself, the writer, this unknown writer of the letter to Diognetus, calls himself a disciple of the apostles, showing that though every apostle is a disciple, not all disciples are apostles. That's why when I talk about the apostles, I usually don't say like the 12 disciples. Now it's okay to say that because all apostles are disciples. And in fact, in some spots in scripture, it says the 12 disciples, so it's okay. But I try to keep it, I, I try to keep it straight in everybody's minds, that the 12 apostles are a special category of the the disciples. And here, this guy acknowledges that he's a disciple of the apostles, and not all disciples are. The apostles had, I say here, a unique role to play in the establishment of the church. So there are some of the early church fathers. You've got Clement, you've got Polycarp. But among those earliest church fathers, Ignatius stands out. While some contend that he was a disciple of Peter, Paul, John, or all three, evidence for those first two is really quite meager, and an association with John really cannot be proved. But there is little doubt that he did, in fact, make the acquaintance of Polycarp. And that his years, Ignatius' years, overlapped those of the Apostle John. So here's a guy, Ignatius, who is a Christian Christian, and he is an early Christian leader who is, lives at the end of the first century into the beginning of the second. And so he knew Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, and his years overlapped with those of John himself. And Ignatius, top of page six, uses discipleship terminology more frequently than any other apostolic father, revealing the most important information about the development of discipleship in the days of the early church. One writer summarizes what he believed, what Ignatius believed about conversion and discipleship. Conversion is the point at which one becomes a disciple, but true disciples will continue to grow in discipleship. And he clarifies that Ignatius understood that, quote, this is not to say that disciples will always obey perfectly. At times, disciples will be wayward and will need to be brought back into line. Get this. Ignatius warned his friend Polycarp that there will be disobedient disciples at times. And, quote, he says this to Polycarp, It's of no credit to you if you're fond of good pupils. Rather, by your gentleness, subdue those who are annoying. Well, that's a classic. And so, and what, but what he's saying is, hey, Polycarp as Christian leaders. We take all comers, all the people who have come to Jesus, And in all of their struggles and in all of their stumbles that we seek to see them make progress and if it were just the steady progression in growing in christ without any stumbling without any two steps forward and one step back that would be beautiful but the truth is that's not the christian life so polycarp that's what we're called called to do Therefore, the apostolic fathers, as exemplified by Ignatius, viewed discipleship as indeed a process. Although a Christian becomes a disciple through conversion, the life of a disciple is not a static phenomenon. Discipleship means growth and progress toward the goal of becoming more like Jesus. Simply by using the term disciple, the authors conjure up an image of the Christian who's a committed follower of Jesus. To be a true disciple means that a person has made a definite conversion commitment to follow Jesus. And it's expected that the person who makes that commitment will carry it through to completion. A practical outworking of a discipleship process is referenced in a historical document called Apostolic Tradition. It's widely attributed to Hippolytus of Rome from the early 3rd century. Early 3rd century, that would be the early 200s in which it's suggested that that those accepted into the fellowship of the church must first be examined regarding testimony and character and be instructed, now get this, for a period of up to three years. Instruction for neophytes, that's just new believers, at that time consisted of a broad range of teaching in systematic theology, including theology proper, Christology, pneumatology, soteriology, etc., Let me just stop there. That's part of the reason that we have a class called Master Plan for Life. That I have told you is a systematic theology for regular people. And it covers the categories of systematic theology, theology proper, the doctrine of Christ, pneumatology, the doctrine of the spirit, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. And so when I said, look, Ken didn't make this up, it's based upon what the scriptures teach, and then it was carried out by people smarter than me a long time ago. And so that is the anti-Nicene church fathers and how some of them pursued discipleship. But then you have post-Nicene discipleship, after 325 and how that happened. And so I'd like for us to see that uh, next week And then in the weeks after that, I want us to see how we are going to seek to become a fuller service church than we even are now. Now, before, since I told you at the end of our notes that you'll see how that disjunction came to be between salvation and discipleship. Turn, if you will, to the back of your notes. page 10 second to the last page and on that page we're talking about some people historically called the moravians who uh, developed and adhered to something called pietism and very quickly pietism just emphasized a warm close personal relationship with the lord now that's all very good of course But unfortunately, over time, the warm, close personal relationship came to overtake the need for systematic theology and understanding truth and all of that. All right. So pietism sometimes today is spoken of in negative terms because of that, even though it started with good, good reasons. Now the last paragraph, which shows up in the middle of page 10, those strains have had both positive and negative effects. Philip Spainer's godson, Spainer is considered uh, the founder of pietism, godson, and August Frank's uh, student, Nicholas von Zenzendorf, created a kind of collegia pietatis in Germany for Moravian refugees. The Moravian spiritual zeal resulted in two healthy contributions to the church. They stimulated the eventual missions efforts of other denominations, And also, top of page 11, prioritize congregational singing in gathered worship. And they are also responsible humanly for the salvation of none other than John Wesley. Some of you know that name from church history. He's the founder of the the Methodists. But here's what happened with Wesley. With Wesley, a theological shift occurred that would have profound and ultimately negative effects on discipleship. In particular, as Combs says, so here I am quoting Combs in Virginia, our beloved former elder, Dr. Combs. He says, John Wesley invented the doctrine of a second sanctifying work of grace. Wesley's view of sanctification has been transmitted in our day through the influence of important individuals and movements, Charles Finney, Asa Mahon, B.B. Palmer, the Higher Life Movement, and the Keswick, that's the way that's pronounced, Keswick, the W is silent, or Victorious Life Movement. The second work of grace is variously designated as baptism of the Holy Spirit, filling with the Spirit, an act of dedication, a crisis experience, second blessing, and on it goes. For our purposes, it's not necessary to review the particulars of these, only to note that what all of them have in common is that if they occur at all, they occur after salvation thus one's growth in holiness depends on a spiritual experience in addition to being born again regeneration and what we're saying there is that's false and you've got lots of people who have come to believe that that you've got to have some second thing and they call it different names that's got to happen if you're really going to become a disciple but when you become a when you're a believer at that moment you're a disciple and then you are to be matured as a disciple Next week, we'll see some more of what the post-Nicene Church did with regard to discipleship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the blessings of today. We thank you for, in our first hour, the opportunity to be reminded of what a faithful life looks like. Thank you for laying that out for us in the lives of your servants, Aquila and Priscilla, and thank you, for giving us the privilege of being able to see it up close in our dear friends, Pastor Richin and Tracy. So thank you for that. Thank you for this time and the opportunity to see what you have said in your word about your church's role in creating environments for people to be built up in the faith and to grow in Christ and to see what servants from the past have done in order to try to implement that. Lord, grant us wisdom here as we seek to be a full service church, meeting the needs of all of your people at every stage of life so that we can grow in and please you. We ask you to go with us this week, grant us safety, bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.